Hello, and welcome to the last episode of Medieval Beginnings. I'm Mary Wellesley, a contributor to the paper, and I'm joined, as ever, by Irina Dumitrescu, also a contributor to the paper. Hello, Irina. Hello, Mary. This is the culmination of a year-long tour through the strange and magical world of medieval literature. And so it's appropriate that we are concluding with a journey. This week, we're transported to magical lands filled with gold-digging ants, cannibals, and geese with two heads. We'll meet monstrous creatures with human bodies and the heads of dogs, as well as the mysterious Eastern patriarch, Prester John. Today's episode is, of course, about the hair-brained travels of Sir John Mandeville. It's a text full of madcap, sometimes unintentional humour, but it also has a darker side. It is both delighted and terrified by the people and lands beyond Europe's shores. When Christopher Columbus's ship, the Santa Cruz, sighted land on the 12th of October, 1492, a copy of Mandeville's travels lay in the Admiral's day cabin. Okay, so Irina, let's talk about the opening of this text because it it kind of situates us in quite a specific way. That's right, Mary. It it doesn't begin where you'd expect, right? The, our our narrator here is an English knight, John Mandeville. We'll talk about that later. And so you would think that it begins in England and moves out from there. But actually, it starts in the Holy Land. And only a few paragraphs in do we have the introduction to the author, who is supposed to be a knight from St. Albans. Apparently, he set sail on Michaelmas Day in 1332, on the journey to the Holy Land, and then on to Asia and Africa. And this is all, you know, this is taking place after the Crusades. He says it's been such a long time since the Crusades, so he thinks readers would like to hear what's going on. There's a sense that the Crusades could be renewed, and that at least at the beginning, this seems a very kind of Christian perspective, um, a militant Christian perspective, that there are lands to be conquered or reconquered. But in fact, this is taking place um, after the fall of Akko and the last Christian stronghold in the Holy Land. So at this point, the Europeans are out of that area. The Mamluks have taken it over. So so this, this narrator, um, you've said kind of at the beginning, he's not really an author. Who is this so-called John Mandeville? Unfortunately, we don't really know. Um, I think er- earlier scholarship thought that he was an English author, and there certainly are a lot of English texts. Uh, now it's assumed the text was first written in in French. This is possibly French or Belgian cleric writing in the mid-14th century, and uh, we don't think that he really traveled to all those places, not just because some of the people described clearly didn't exist. They're outlandish. Uh, but even so, it seems that this is this is actually a compiler. This is someone who's reading a lot of sources and compiling a travel narr- narrative out of these different books, even though the the narrator acts as though he's seen it, right? He talks about being in certain places or about the sultan telling him things or being at the court of the great Khan. This seems to be a fiction. Yeah, because in one sense, it isn't it isn't a true travelogue, but it's a sort of travelogue through a library in a way, because it's this kind of journey through this diverse source material. You know, it's it's kind of this tapestry of different sources. We've got Isidore Seville, Vincent de Beauvais. It's clearly very grounded in these Dominican and Franciscan texts produced by missionaries specifically. And, and it kind of shows the 
the kind of Christian zeal and, as you said, a kind of militant Christian zeal to not only understand the world beyond Europe's shores, but also to to conquer it and possibly to enslave it and also to convert those peoples to Christianity. And so those texts clearly are, are kind of informing this, informing the text itself. But so, I mean, can we can we give readers something of the sort of texture of the travels? You know, what's what's it like to read it? Well, I, I think, you know, it is a book that you can read from beginning to end. But I, I suspect that it was also meant to be dipped into. We have quite disparate sections. The prose is pr- pretty direct. It's not complex or particularly poetic. It can be a bit repetitive sometimes. And I, I think it's really meant to be enjoyed in chunks. There are a lot of facts given. It's a it's a very, you know, facts with, with quotation marks around them, of course. Not all of them are facts, although sometimes, surprisingly, they are. You know, there are these little glimpses of cultures and cultural practices that we know to be true from today. But it's the kind of text that will give measurements and distances and how many days travel it takes to get from this place to that place so that you get the sense of authority from it. And it's quite also disparate in the way it's laid out. There's a lot of uh, time spent in the Holy Land at the beginning and then around to Egypt, for example, and to North Africa. There's a great amount of detail around Jerusalem. But then in other areas, it'll just give us little islands or little nations, one at a time, one paragraph each, and sort of cycle through them quickly. And in those cases, it almost seems like those peoples are almost thought experiments rather than an exploration of a, of a, of a place. Yeah, so it's, it's quite a diverse text. Yeah, I think we should probably say that, you know, some of the texts that we've done in this series are decidedly more rhetorically complicated and uh, formally interesting. And as you say, you know, it, it is a little bit plodding in places. But I think this partially explains why it was so incredibly popular. And we'll, we'll get on to just quite how popular it was in a second. And I think in, in some ways, I, I was sort of thinking about what are the what are the kind of analogies from today that explain what this text is sort of like. And I and I there's this wonderful line in it where the author Mandeville, the narrator, says, "Men say in all ways that new thinkers and new tidings been pleasant to hear." So men always say that new things and new tidings are pleasant to hear. And and I was thinking about this idea of newness and new tidings, and and thinking about news and our own kind of fixation with news in our own day. And and then I was kind of thinking, yeah, this is this is kind of the Daily Mail sidebar of shame. It's this kind of, you know, there there are moments when this this text kind of gawps at these these people, these creatures that are kind of familiar but also quite distant. And, and it, it felt, I felt that there were certain kind of strange parallels there. I think that's exactly right. There's a tabloid quality to it. And, mm. and that's true in a couple of ways. One is that you get, you know, moments of political reflection that are actually quite interesting in terms of a, you know, sort of thinking of reflections on justice, reflections on how societies can be set up. And I think you can, you know, read those as as maybe not very in-depth uh, set of ideas, <laughs> but, but certainly interesting to think about in terms of the political imagination of Western Europe at this time. You get a lot of sexy stuff, you know, a lot of se- sex lives of various foreign peoples, you know. We get sales advice, almost like ads, 
And we get this weird mix of things that are true and things that are not true. And it's not always easy to tell because when a text give you, gives you some true things, it's hard to know which of the out, outlandish things are false and, and which aren't. Uh, and we'll come back to that, but I think that's one of the sort of textures of, of this text. It doesn't lie easily in either fiction or nonfiction or something like history. I don't really know what people were meant to believe at the time. And I somehow doubt that intelligent readers really believed all of it. But where did they draw the line, right? Mm. And and I think we should also say there's a there's a kind of feeling sometimes when you're reading it that that there are these kind of wormholes in the text. There are these moments when you suddenly swoop back into biblical history or a moment when suddenly you're transported forward into the future and you know Mandeville the narrator will say you know this is what the prophecy has described that this is what will happen in, in you know in the coming days. And so just as it's kind of playing a little fast and loose with geography and it's sort of moving around and it's talking about, you know, this is one way to get to Jerusalem, but another way is this way. It's kind of doing the same thing with time, that time is, is not this kind of linear thing. It's, it's, much, it's much more complex, much more web-like. I think another thing that we should perhaps emphasize is that although we don't think that this John Mandeville, um, who was from St. Albans, really existed, in some senses, it kind of, it makes sense as an idea that he might have come from St. Albans, because this was a place of, you know, in the late medieval period of, you know, St. Albans Abbey, incredibly wealthy Benedictine Abbey, a place of real scientific innovation, incredible learning, so it sort of it sort of fits with our idea of of you know where where a great learned traveler should come from, and of course the other thing to say is that you know he the narrator is very much framed as a knight, and so we're almost kind of touching up against the sort of romance genre that we've we've talked about in earlier episodes of the series. You know, here is the figure of the knight, which is this very kind of appealing figure. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's also fair to say this is not the first travel narrative of its kind. There were others, and there's also, you know, as you said, there's a romance tradition of thinking about uh, heroic men who travel widely. Um, the Alexander story is wildly popular in the Middle Ages in all sorts of languages. We even get it already in Old English. So this idea of a man who boldly goes to the East and sees strange and marvelous things and untold riches and, you know, meets with the peoples there. Um, that has a long tradition in European vernacular and Latin writing. Thanks for listening to this extract from Medieval Beginnings, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other close reading series, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description.